We are finishing our exposition of the Eighth Commandment this morning. The Eighth Commandment reads, Thou shalt not steal. Just by way of review, remembering the ground that we've covered thus far, we looked under our first heading at the expansive meaning and the evangelical purpose of the commandment. Thy law is exceedingly broad, David says in the 119th Psalm. And of course, the law is given not to make a man righteous, but to show him his sin, so that he might run from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary and be saved from his sin. And then we looked at the catechetical summary of the West... Uh, of the commandment in the Westminster Larger Catechism. We looked at the duties required and the sins forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Many of them we looked at. And then we became, uh, we, we came to the specific application of the Eighth Commandment to pertinent issues in society and in the church in our third study. Last time we met together, uh, I, I asked the question, how does the Eighth Commandment apply to some pertinent issues in society? We looked at private property ownership. We looked at the subject of gambling, at sex, at governmental st- stealing from the government, um, our personal business dealings, how the Eighth Commandment impinges upon them. Does the Eighth Commandment say anything about panhandling? And what does it say about survival stealing? Now, this morning we leave those more general societal applications of the Eighth Commandment, and we come to ask the question, how does the Eighth Commandment apply to some pertinent issues in the church? And really we're going to just be focusing on two areas, one more briefly, one more extendedly, And the first one is this. Does the Eighth Commandment address the subject of Christian communalism? Now you might say, Pastor Steve, this is a rather strange question. Christian communalism? What, pray tell, are you talking about? But the Catechism, assuming the positive implications of the Eighth Commandment, recognizes the duty of Christians of giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. So does our duty to demonstrate mutual generosity toward one another, especially toward needy brethren, does it demand a kind of Christian communism in the church. Well, to borrow the language from the early chapters of the book of Acts, are members of local churches required to have all things in common? In other words, does the New Testament view local churches as communities where none of the members own anything but share all things? Some in the history of the church have taught and practiced this. Monasteries and nunneries, to one degree or another, are organized on this principle. And beyond the pale of Rome, quasi-Christian communes throughout the world attempt to follow this model. 
In fact, I understand that one such Christian commune was, and maybe still is, located here in the Twin Cities, but I do know that one does presently exist in central Minnesota under the guise of being a Christian commune. Because some confusion surrounds this subject, I wish to, discuss, to address it briefly. First of all, let us examine the texts of Scripture used by our Puritan frame, the framers of the Westminster Larger Catechism to see if they believe that the New Testament requires some kind of Christian communism. What support is given in our duty of giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others? Is the existence of private property assumed in the text that they adduce? And I have a few of them. We're not going to look at any of them in any length, but the first is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 30 through 38. We're not going to look at the whole passage, but notice what Jesus says. Give to everyone who asks you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, that statement there requires much uh, searching through the rest of the Scriptures to see exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying if somebody wants what we own, to just give it to them, no questions asked. Verse 34, And lend to those from whom you expect... uh, And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your your Father is merciful. And do not... Judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And then 1 John 3 and verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods... And beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? The God who loved you and gave you everything, including his son. How can you say that you love God if you have the world's goods and you don't give to your brother who is in need? Ephesians 4 and verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. And Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Well, note with me some observations that we may draw from these statements about private property and our duty to be generous. First of all, clearly assumed is the fact that we own what we give to others. It is ours first, and we give it in turn to them. Second, giving, especially giving to the needy, demonstrates love. 
Love gives what it owns for the good of those in need. Thirdly, assumed also is that giving what we own to supply for the needs of others is voluntary. It's not mandated by a rigid law, but by the law of love as it finds opportunity. And this will become clear as we proceed. So does the New Testament permit or even require Christian communes where all things are held in common? Well, brethren, the texts that are usually appealed to by those who teach Christian communism are not what we have seen, but are found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed, remember this is the early church, 3,000 people had just been saved at the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. There was all kinds of excitement and enthusiasm in the air. And some, some, some counsel is given here. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Now notice, first of all, there's no commandment here. There was an inner compulsion that caused these Christians to sell their property and their possessions and share with those who had less, those who were in need. And then Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Well, there you have it. If you don't have it by command, you have it by example. We are to be Christian communists, right? Well, let me ask you, do these passages teach Christian communism? And if not, what do they teach? Well, consider these observations with me. First, clearly, what we behold here was a unique and temporary situation due to poverty. In fact, it was a poverty that was soon exacerbated by the onset of persecution. Women were widowed and forced into destitution because their believing husbands and the breadwinner of their homes were being killed. They were destitute and they needed provision and they received it from others in the church. Second, those who contributed to the needs of their brethren in the church did so voluntarily. It's important we understand this. And this practice was not mandated by the leaders of the church. The apostles didn't demand it. They didn't require it. They, they didn't make it a, a matter of, of obedience and of church membership. No. Now this is clear from Peter's words to Ananias about his property, which he sold to provide some support for the church. Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. While it remained unsold, speaking about the property that he sold, did it not remain your own? It was your own to begin with, Peter says to Ananias. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Even after you sold it, you could, you could do, do with what you had as you wanted. It was still under your control. Well, the giving of these charitable funds 
brethren, was encouraged by the apostles, and yet they were offered freely and without constraint. During a famine later, Paul and Barnabas gathered famine relief from the church in Antioch to assist needy brethren in Judea. Acts chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that they that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So they gave proportionately, it says here, and they gave what they wanted. It was self-determined, the gifts that were given. We observe a sense of community, of mutual commitment to Christ and to each other here, do we not? A brotherhood of love, generous, generously supplying the needs of brethren, known only by their need. They didn't know them by their face. They only knew them by their need. And they knew them by their union in Jesus Christ. These are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And beloved, it's on this assumption that the Apostle Paul appealed to the more wealthy Christians in southern Greece, in Corinth, that they may assist their needy Jewish brethren in Judea. And so... He does twice in the Corinthian epistles. He, appeal, he appeals to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, I already directed them, I'm directing you, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come, Paul says, I'm not going to come and, and then ask for contributions. That would be awkward. I want you to do this decently in an order, have it ready for when we come. The apostle appealed to the generosity of the less affluent brethren in northern Greece, in Macedonia, in fact, to urge proportionate giving by the more well-heeled brethren in Achaia. But again, the giving was voluntary. It was not constrained. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Here Paul is extolling the grace of God in these Macedonian Christians who had very shallow pockets, but dug to the very depths to provide for the needs of their brethren. Brethren they'd never seen before. Paul says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 8, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. We see this is a great privilege, Paul. We're going to dig deep in our pockets. We thank you for the opportunity to help our brethren in a faraway place. We have little to give, but what we have, we're giving it. And we're giving it all. The believers in Christ supported their needy brethren 
in their own and other churches is clear. And just as clear is that all the giving of their personal resources was voluntary and not coerced. And brethren, the lesson from the New Testament for us is clear. Support of our needy brethren from our personal funds, both at home, here in our church, outside our church, and across the world, abroad, is our Christian duty. But these funds must be given freely, proportionately, and joyfully, according to our opportunity and ability. Why is this? Why do we need to support other churches? Why do we need to help other beleaguered Christians? Well, brethren, the church is a family that must look out for the needs of its members, both at home and abroad. The Bible teaches that we are members of one another. We are united as an extended family. We are brothers and sisters, all bought with the precious blood of Christ, all indwelt with the same Holy Spirit, all children of the same Heavenly Father, all pilgrims possessed with the same precious promises, who all look ahead for the same glorious hope. We're all one blessed body headed for one heavenly home. We are members one of another, the Bible teaches. Therefore, when one part of the body aches, we ache with it. When it's hungry, we supply as we have opportunity for its need. What we own then in the way of the world's goods belong ultimately to God to be used not just for our enjoyment, but for the blessing of those who are less fortunate than we are. Does the Eighth Commandment address the subject of Christian communalism? Yes, it does. In fact, we're to be more generous than perhaps those that are in these Christian communes. Not just providing for the the little body, we're to provide for our body outside of our body into the far reaches of the world according to our opportunity and ability. Secondly, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning, does the Eighth Commandment say anything about religious theft? You say religious theft, that seems kind of oxymoronic. Be a Christian and yet to be a thief? By religious theft, I refer to thievery that is carried on on under the guise of Christianity. Many are its faces, several are its disguises, but common to all its forms is that something precious is stolen in the name of Christian ministry and service, or the lack thereof. Religious theft involves stealing both from men and from God, Notice first, religious theft, which involves stealing from men. Many are its forms. Some are ugly, some are more refined, all are evil. First of all, consider religious theft within the church in general. First of all, religious theft happens, and this is very sad, and it's in the news, frequently, when sexual abuse occurs in the church. One of the most egregious examples of religious theft 
involves the betraying the trust of the young and robbing them of their innocence, both by priests and by pastors. We tend to think it's only in Rome. No, it's also in the Reformation. Reformation churches. Denying the very thing that we say we believe. And brethren, this foul scandal stinks not only in the church, but it is rightly condemned even by this crooked and adult generation. Ungodly people, people of the world, expect better of the church. It should grieve our hearts. Secondly, religious theft happens through false teaching in the church. Pastors rob their congregation when they fail to preach the whole counsel of God, or by corrupting its teaching, or by substituting the word of man for the word of God. Paul warned that such theft would occur, and brethren, this theft goes both ways. Those who stop their ears to God's truth gladly open those ears to those who will fill them with lies in the name of the truth. They steal from themselves, and they allow others to steal from them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, For the time will come when they, these are professing Christians, these are church-going people, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They just won't put up with it any longer. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They find ungodly men who are engaged in the same kind of sins, and they sit comfortably under their ministry because they know that they're not going to be offended by the truth. Rather, they'll be stroked by lies. Paul says this is going to increase toward the end of the age. This delight in being robbed of irritating truth in the name of hearing comfortable lies is nothing new. Isaiah preached to carnal religious hearers eight centuries before Christ. Isaiah 30, beginning at verse 9. He's, he's speaking to Israel, the covenant people of God. For this is a rebellious people, false sons. They're not true sons of Abraham. They might have been circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart. Sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Who say to the seers, that is to the prophets, you must not see visions. We just won't put up with it. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Tell good stories. Make us feel comfortable. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear about this God who is holy. We don't want to hear about this God who requires obedience to His commandments. We want to be told things that make us feel good about ourselves. We don't want to be confronted with the law of God. We don't want to have to face our sin. We want to go away 
feeling better about ourselves than when we came in. We want you to prophesy illusions. Speaks oily, comfortable, smooth things to us. Brother, how unlike the apostles who never robbed their hearers of the truth in the name of making them feel good. Instead, they preached the unvarnished truth straight to men's consciences as in the sight of God. Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. The things that are being preached to you by these so-called super apostles that come in in our wake, we're, be, we're gone and now they're setting up shop there and they're teaching you all kinds of things of which they should be ashamed of. But we have renounced the, hidden, the, the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. We're not taking you by sleight of hand. We're not mixing things in with the word of God and calling it the Bible. But by the manifestation of truth, we present it openly, straightforwardly. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience. We're going after men's consciences. We're not feel-good preachers. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We know before whom we stand, not just the people, but before God. What are preachers of critical race theory and other man-centered doctrines but thieves who rob their hearers of the pure word of Christ? The only message that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Those messages don't save. They confuse at best and at worst they damn. Thirdly, religious theft happens when greedy preachers and religious leaders steal money from their hearers. There's a lot of hucksters out there that want to take your money in the name of religion. And instead of enriching their hearers with the word of God, these thieves steal not only the gospel from the ears, but also money from the pockets of their unwitting hearers. Such preachers appeal to covetous persons like themselves who are greedy for material gain. And they know that the easiest person to con is another con. And religion is no exception. So teach the apostles of false teachers. 2 Peter 2 and verse 3. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. They're after your money. They're, they're, they're not seeking for your soul to be saved, but for your pockets to be emptied. First Timothy 6 and verse 5, And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. They're of depraved mind, they're deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're appealing to you in the name of religion in order to get from you what they want. You want to empty your pockets and fill theirs. Promising them happiness, health, wealth in exchange for their generous donations. False teachers today greedily fleece their unsuspecting sheep. And how they can carry on their ministries is an evidence that the devil has blinded their eyes. 
Further, religious theft happens when pastors steal other men's sermons. Judging from several current articles, pastoral plagiarism has apparently reached plague proportions. Now, I speak not of borrowing an idea here or there from other preachers and of giving credit where credit is due. That's one thing. But preaching another man's sermons as one's own is quite another. Plagiarism is plainly theft and is thus clearly condemned by the Eighth Commandment. Brethren, the only words which are truly public domain are the words of God. God's word can never be stolen. It can only be given. It never robs, but only and always enriches. Yeah, I heard somebody the other day, she was talking about the pastor, and she said, you know, pastor preached an excellent message today. In fact, I heard pastor so-and-so preach that message on the radio. Well, obviously, he'd stolen from the radio pastor in order to preach his own message. Ostensibly his own, but another man's. Fifthly, obviously, religious theft occurs when people steal church funds. And brethren, sadly, this is not uncommon. Judas, the treasurer of the apostles, pilfered their purse. And he has his counterparts in the church today. In fact, I know at least one man who has served time for stealing money from the church. So we're looking at religious theft within the church in general. Now let us be more confined. Notice religious theft between members in the church in particular. Religious theft in the church happens when God's people steal from one another by failing to use their spiritual gifts, their monetary blessings, and providential opportunities for the blessing of their brethren. And I suggest to you that this constitutes robbery by neglect. We're not loving our nearest neighbor as we ought. Indeed, we're not loving him as we love ourselves when we fail to bless our brethren with God's gifts that he's given us. I suggest that we steal blessing we could bestow upon our brothers and sisters when we fail to practice the commanded one another's in the church. The New Testament places us under holy obligation to use our gifts for the good of other members in the church. Brethren, we are stewards of the gifts that God has given us to be used for the benefit and blessing of others. We are guilty of selfishness or laziness when we bury our talent and not invest it in the lives of others. And what are these one another's but a sacred obligation we owe to our Christian brethren in the church? Notice several areas in the New Testament. And of course, the first one, an obvious one, is that we are to love one another. And all of these other one another's are really expressions, various expressions of loving one another. 
First of all, we steal from our brethren when we refuse to show them devoted brotherly love and honor. Be devoted to one another, Paul writes in Romans 12 and verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give yourself conscientiously to this. Give preference to one another in honor. As you see, when you love someone else, you want to lift them up. Give them preference in honor. Treating our brethren is more important than ourselves, like the Lord Jesus did in Philippians chapter 2. He's our example. Secondly, we steal from our brethren when we withhold from them faithful admonitions. Again, Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Paul writes, and he hadn't been to the church in Rome, and yet he's writing these things. He says, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. They'd received the grace of God. They're believers. They've been born again. They're new creatures in Christ. You are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. You've been well instructed and able also to admonish one another. You've been taught well and you know what is required of one another. Giving needed warnings and exhortations. Thirdly, we steal from our brethren when we don't confess our sin to or pray for them. James 5 and verse 16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another, especially those sins that you've committed against each other. What is public and what is private may differ, but where they need to know, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Don't just leave it with confession, but pray for one another so that you may be healed. Maybe God's dealing with you. You've sinned and God has afflicted you. The aff- The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Furthermore, we steal from our brethren when we fail to serve them with our spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. You know, we could go to Romans 12 and we could go to we could go to Ephesians 4, but 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. As each one has received a special gift. Use it for your own edification. Is that what Peter says? No. Employ it in serving one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You've received the grace of God as a steward. You've received a gift of that grace. Use it for the encouragement, for the service of one another. Paul in Titus chapter 2 speaks of various categories of, of men and women in the church and how they're to use their gifts and opportunities for the good of the body. There's gifts of helps and of mercy and of teaching to be used, untapped perhaps, in the church. Fifthly, we steal from our brethren when we fail to practice cheerful hospitality. Cheerful hospitality. First Peter again, chapter 4 and verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I appreciate the honesty of the Apostle. Be hospitable. The word hospitable is really a word that means lover of strangers. And if we're to love strangers, we're to do good to them, certainly we should be doing good to our closest friends. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Don't be murmuring and driving up. Do we have to invite somebody over to our house again? You know, we can find all kinds of reasons not to have brethren into our homes. 
And you know, I don't think they carry a lot of merit with, with Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give. And we're to be like that. Let me ask you, when was the last time you had brothers and sisters from this church into your home? You know, I used to harp on this when I first came here several years ago. Let not the next year go unless you've had every member of the church over to your house at least once. And you know, brethren, we're a small church, and this is entirely doable. We need to be better about that. Let's chuck our excuses, and let's use our opportunities. Sixthly, we steal encouragement from our brethren when we needlessly absent ourselves from public worship. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let's think hard about this. Let's look for opportunities for doing it. Let's urge each other to love and good deeds. And notice, it's in the context of the public worship of God. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to come here to worship God and to bless our brothers and sisters. Seventhly, we steal from our brethren by not reverently submitting to them. Ephesians 5.21 And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This subjection, you see, is religious. It's in the fear of Christ. We need to heed the counsel and the exhortations of our brothers and sisters to subject ourselves to them because it's ultimately subjecting ourselves to the Lord. Eighthly, we steal from our brethren by not showing them forgiveness and forbearance. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And I dare say, if we're not kind and we're not tender-hearted, we won't be forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Think about what God did in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. When you remember all the heinous things, all of the things that you've done, and God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ, and you think of the pitily little things that your brothers and sisters do against you, they're not worthy to be compared. Our own Constitution says in our covenant obligations, that by ready reconciliation and faithful exhortation in the church. That's our covenant responsibility. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, it's easy to run over these words, with lowliness and inoffensiveness, with patience, how impatient we tend to be. Showing forbearance to one another in love. There's the great grace that manifests itself in gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Graciously bearing with our less than perfect brethren. Because you know what? They graciously bear with us. The golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. 
Ninthly, we steal from our brethren when we fail to speak truthfully to them. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be transparent. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Don't be hiding things that they need to know. See, we're born liars. And we're born again to be truth-tellers. Kind truth-tellers. Tenthly, we steal from our brethren when we fail to show them visible tokens of affection. I pick from one of many verses. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I know that COVID concerns have hampered this to a degree. Brethren, we need to demonstrably show our affection to one another. Even in this crooked and adulterous generation, we can show signs of our affection without being misunderstood. When was the last time you took a brother by the hand and pulled him up to you, put your arm around him and hugged him and told him that you loved him? When was the last time you did that? We're to love each other with the love that Christ has loved us with. He's saved us from our sins. We have the kiss of forgiveness upon our cheek from Him. Shouldn't we show affection to one another in a proper and appropriate way? Finally, and I'll try to be brief, and I've got too many notes here. But finally, religious theft involves robbing God. Not just robbing men, but robbing God. We are guilty of religious theft when we rob God. Perhaps you might be saying to yourself, how can I steal from God since He owns everything? Well, the Bible teaches that we may rob God. Obviously, we rob God by our disobedience. We owe God obedience, and when we disobey, we're robbing Him of just due obedience. But specifically, first of all, we rob God when we fail to financially support His church. God indicts a carnal, formalistic Israel with their willful rebellion in refusing Him their required tithes and offerings. Malachi 3 and verse 8. Malachi asks, Will a man rob God? You are robbing me, says God through the mouth of Malachi. But you say, How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Now, tithes and offerings were required under the Old Covenant, and they were used for the support of the priests and of the Levites, of the temple services, and they were used to support the poor. We rob God when we fail to support the work of the church. Not just pastors who labor in the Word and in doctrine, but the other ministries such as missions, as well as such common and profane things as the utilities and other costs, ordinarily required to carry on the ministry of the church. And note that robbing God is not simply a financial consideration. It has profound spiritual implications. 
Israel was guilty not only of sacrilegious theft, but of belligerent self-justification. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? See that belligerent re reply? We can be belligerent that way. In the language of our Lord, they refuse to render to God the things that belong to God. They rob God not only of finances, but also and especially of honor. Proverbs 3 and verse 9, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Refusal to support the work of the ministry by withholding our tithes and offerings robs God the honor that's due His name. And, and brethren, I'm not saying this because there are I don't know what you give. Thankfully, I don't know. Our deacon knows. And I'm, I'm not saying this because my brother has come to me and said, you know, the church giving is way down and we don't know how we're going to pay our bills or to pay you. No, that's, I'm giving general exhortations here. In fact, I'm very encouraged by the deep pockets of the brethren in this church. Let me commend you for that. But this goes on. The, the amount of tithing that goes on in churches is minuscule. just got an article on that and I was going to bring it with me. A very small percentage give even 10%. And many give no percent. Brethren, we honor God when we give back to Him cheerfully and generously out of the bounty He provides. Stinginess, on the other hand, dishonors God. We serve a generous, large-handed God. We're to be the same way. Secondly, we rob God when we steal from Him the pure worship He has commanded. And as we are recently instructed from John chapter 4 by our brother Randy, God seeks worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And we rob God when we fail to worship Him in spirit when we offer Him anything less than our whole souls in attentive, submissive devotion to His Word. John 4, verses 23 and 24. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Why? Because God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, worshiping God in truth is worshiping Him according to the word of truth, through Jesus Christ who is incarnate truth. We come to the Father only through Him, and we worship the Father in spirit only as we engage our whole redeemed souls in divine devotion by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. We engage our whole souls in His worship. There's a certain sobriety and ecstasy at work within our hearts when we're giving ourselves completely to God. We're not here to just perfunctorily go through the motions and say, I worship God today. That's easy to do. Brethren, we have to roll up our spiritual sleeves when we come to worship God. He demands nothing less than all of us. And doesn't He deserve it? But how easy it is to be perfunctory in our worship. To worship God in spirit and truth forbids us from worshiping him in any other way than he has prescribed. Otherwise, we rob God. Observe briefly how we may rob God 
by not worshiping Him in truth, and then by failing to worship Him in spirit. We must worship God in truth, that is, according to Himself as the truth, revealed in the Word of truth. And the timeless principle is set before us, and I can only read it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to, nor take away from it. You see, there's theft by subtraction, and there's theft by addition. Taking from God's worship what He has commanded, and adding it to it what He's not prescribed. We worship God in truth when we refuse to add to or subtract from the elements He has commanded in His Word. And we noted earlier that false teachers rob their hearers by stealing from or by adulterating God's pure Word. And similarly, brethren, we rob God by imposing our innovations upon His worship. To put it bluntly, God forbids creative worship. And Jesus makes this plain. Divine worship in its day had become polluted with human inventions. And the effect of such inventions distracted men's hearts from God because they detracted from His truth. Jesus judged innovators as thieves and hypocrites. Mark 7, verses 6-9, through And He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They are not worshiping Him in spirit. It was hypocritical worship. And they didn't worship Him in truth either. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Brethren, the Eighth Commandment takes us right back to the first four commandments. We are to worship God alone and only as He has commanded. We are to give Him the praise due His awesome name. And we must not forsake our assembling together, but gather with His people for His worship on His day. You see, God's worship is not a a matter of preference but of principle, not of option, but of obedience, of obligation. God wants all of our hearts humbly and joyfully submitted to His Word and animated by His Spirit. And I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, when we come here and give Him anything less, we are robbing God. We are not giving Him our best. He wants us to worship Him in the context of mutual brotherly service in the church. Anything less than this is theft. So each of us must ask ourselves in conclusion, how may I be robbing my brethren by not serving them with my gifts and by my sacred obligations of love in the church? And how may I be robbing God of the solemn, exuberant worship due His glorious name? And I trust you see that these are not unimportant questions. They deserve a thoughtful and an honest answer in the sight of God. Bless God that those who honestly answer these questions posed for Mount Sinai are pointed to Mount Calvary. 
and to the perfect once for all sacrifice for sinners. Let's face it, brethren, we are all robbers by nature, by fallen nature, are we not? We're not to come here to spruce ourselves up. We're to come here and fall on our faces before God and say, you know, I heard some preaching today in which God put His finger upon my heart and said, Thou art the man. So He points us away from Moses to Christ. He points us away from our sin to the Savior. He points us away from our problem to the solution found in the bloodletting of Jesus Christ, of His justifying resurrection from the dead. We're pointed to Christ. The psalmist believed this. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. A song of ascents. They sung this psalm as they ascended to Jerusalem during the three feasts of the year. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And I'm not the one. I can't stand, Lord. I've been found out. Lord, you've seen my iniquities. They're more than the hairs of my head. But notice, he doesn't leave us there at Mount Sinai. He, by intention, brings us to Mount Calvary. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I'm going to ask you to open your hymn books. Hymn number 418. I want to close with these words of the hymn writer. hymn of confession and contrition hymn 418 we have not known thee as we ought nor learned thy wisdom grace and power the things of earth have filled our thought and trifles of the passing hour Lord give us light thy truth to see and make us wise in knowing thee We have not feared thee as we ought, nor bowed beneath thine awful eye, nor guarded deed and word and thought, remembering that God was nigh. Lord, give us faith to know thee near and grant the grace of holy fear. We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly long thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love thou art. We have not served thee as we ought. Alas, the duties left undone. The work with little fervor wrought. The battles lost are scarcely won. Lord, give the zeal and give the might for thee to toil, for thee to fight. When shall we know thee as we ought, and fear and love and serve aright? When shall we out of trial be brought, be perfect in the land of light? Lord, may we day by day prepare to see thy face and serve thee there.
So we're brought out of the depths of our sin. We're brought into the very courts of heaven by the grace of God through renewed faith in Jesus Christ. And may that be where each one of us is this day. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that coming to your commandments, if we're to be faithful to the preaching of the word, we have to be on our knees before you confessing our sins. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We thank you that Mount Sinai points us as sinners to the Savior who gave himself on Mount Calvary. Oh, give us feet of repentance and faith to run to him, to be washed afresh in his cleansing blood, to be filled again with his animating spirit. Oh Lord, how we desire to fear and to know and to love and to serve you, how we have often failed by theft to give you and to give our brethren what they deserve. So we pray that you would take this message and that you would write it upon our hearts. Help us to be those who do not take but give. Indeed, even like the Lord Jesus Christ, who so loved us that he gave himself for us, might we love our brethren and give ourselves to them the same. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.